Well, Father, I come before you just grateful for this opportunity to preach your word. Lord, we thank you for the life of Peter and the example that he is to us. Lord, we're thankful that you called him to ministry, and as we look at his calling, I pray that it'll be instructive for us, where the same traits that your Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, saw in Peter will be true in us as well. Pray that this message will encourage those who need to be encouraged and convict those who need it as well. For your glory and honor, in Christ's name, amen. Well, the year was 1937, and the Chicago Cubs were traveling to California for their spring training at Catalina Island. And a young sports announcer who covers them for Iowa went ahead and joined them, and while he was there, took a screen test for, uh, at Warner Brothers Studio, and he was signed to a seven-year contract. Now, by his own admission, he was a B-grade actor, but his career reached a turning point when he played a double amputee in the book, or not, in the uh, movie, King's Row. In fact, his famous line was, he woke up realizing that his legs were gone, and he yelled, where's the rest of me? And that was considered his finest acting achievement, and it made him an A-list actor. He became the Chris Pratt of that era. Now, at that time, he also began to take some leadership for the Screen Actors Guild. He started to inform for the FBI, and then he stole the show at the 1964 Republican National Convention. He went on to become governor of California, and then the president of the United States. You may have heard of him, right? Ronald Reagan. God bless him. He was my president growing up. I always remember him. And what was interesting is that during his tenure, and this was before you had like celebrities, it's like being a precondition for being a politician. He was kind of the trailblazer. He, he was derided for being an actor. And it was like, well, what can an actor bring into the presidency? But what people began to, to note was he had such a stage presence and an ability to communicate and connect with people through the camera that he was known as the great communicator. All the while, his background in Hollywood gave him a special disdain for communism in all its forms. And as a president, he oversaw the downfall of worldwide communism. He won the World War, or won the Cold War. And I think what you see is that all of the makings of his leadership all of the marks of leadership, what would make him a great leader, were evident early in his career. Now, we're about to take a look at the life of Peter. And often when you think about Peter, we often think about the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He was like some, some dolt who somehow was selected contrary to Jesus' sound judgment to become a leader of the apostles, and God did a miracle with him. But when you kind of look beyond that and really appreciate Peter for the apostle that he was, like when Theophilus is reading this account, he was a towering figure. It was Peter who basically took charge and rounded out the apostles after the ascension of Jesus Christ. When they're all being baptized by the Holy Spirit, it was, it was Peter who came forward and preached one of the finest messages ever given and saw 3,000 people come to Christ. 
This one who cowed before a servant girl basically told all of Jerusalem that you killed your Messiah. He was the one who welcomed the Gentiles into the church personally, which would have basically been seen as an anathema with many of the Jewish nationalists at the time. We benefit from Peter because we read two books that share his name, right? First and Second Peter. He was a, a, a great man and he was a great leader. And what made him great is seen in his initial call. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5, starting verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, after introducing Jesus, we're now introduced to the disciples. These were household names. James and John, the sons of thunder. John, the apostle who Jesus loved. Matthew, the former tax collector. And here we have Peter, the fisherman who becomes a fisher of men. Here he has a vocational change. And this is nothing new, right? Jesus was a carpenter. Moses was a shepherd. And of course, David was a shepherd as well. Uh, it wasn't uncommon to change your profession. And here, Peter has a vocational change. This was the breaking point. This was the point when he put down his nets and he followed Jesus for good. And so the question is, what was it that led Jesus to call Peter? What was it that, that gave Peter some promise in Jesus' eyes? I will contend that Peter had the makings of a leader. And there's three reasons why that we see in this passage. Number one, Peter placed himself in proximity to Jesus. Number two, Peter placed himself under Jesus' authority. Number three, Peter understood his place. And number four, Peter replaced his priorities. And this is instructive for us, right? There, there is a need for good spiritual leadership. 
And not just in the church, but in the family. And, and spiritual leadership is not something that's confined to the elders alone, right? You have, you have different spheres of influence. You have the elders, you have the deacons, you have Sunday school teachers, you have Awana leaders, you have the person who's listening to, not Awana, we're the Adventure Club now, the Adventure Club, you have, you have children reciting their verses. You have youth group leaders, you have families, you have Bible study leaders. It's not confined to the genders. Many of you women do a heroic job of leading other women. You mothers do a good job of leading your children, right? There's always a need for, for spiritual leadership. All of us lead in some way. I guess the question is whether or not you're a good spiritual leader, right? So how do you know somebody has the makings of a spiritual leader? Well, this is where we learn a lot about who Jesus selects to be his chosen disciples. Who it is that shows the promise that Jesus would say, I want you to come follow me. I want you. Well, the first thing that we see about Peter is that Peter placed himself in proximity to Jesus. He placed himself in proximity to Jesus. Look at verse 1. On one occasion, <clears throat> while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now, previously, we're introduced to Peter because Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. Simon and Peter are the same person. Peter is the name given to Simon a little bit later on when he's more committed to Jesus, right? And what's interesting about Peter is, is, this, is the not, this is not the first encounter that Peter has with Jesus. The first one that we have recorded in Scripture is found in the Gospel of John. Peter's brother, Andrew, was a follower of John the Baptist, and he catches wind of Jesus, and Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and this is what we find in John 1, 41 through 42. He, Andrew, first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That was the first encounter. In fact, I would say that what we have here is possibly the third call, so to speak. There's another one found in Matthew chapter 4. And if you kind of look at some of the details, it's different enough to make us think that this was actually the third and final encounter, the third and final call. Now, what's interesting is Jesus is preaching by the Sea of Galilee, and he just happens to be in the proximity of Peter. Now, was this an accident? I, I think not. Now, I'm not sure if, if Jesus was kind of following Peter around, but I would suspect that Peter was actually following Jesus around. And so, Peter right now, he is multitasking, right? He's cleaning the net, and he just happens to be cleaning his nets, you know, taking out the silt and the seaweed and all that stuff, so it'd be better for, use for, for tomorrow. He, he's doing this as he's listening to Jesus preach the word of God. And that's a statement, isn't it? When Jesus preaches, the word of God is coming out of his mouth. And so Peter is listening, and he is listening. And, and, and as he's listening, the, this crowd is starting to grow. And 
poor Jesus, his back is to the water, this crowd is growing, and he takes a step back, and it keeps on swelling and swelling and swelling, and he's like, well, they're pressing against me, what do I do? And he looks around, and he sees a couple of boats, and so he says, Simon, I got a purpose for your boat. He saw two boats, verse 2, but the fishermen had gone out of them and was washing their nets and getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, notice how he picked Simon's boat, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Here we see Simon in proximity. When Jesus taught in the synagogue previously, Simon was there. Andrew brought him to Jesus. Wherever Jesus was to be found, Simon is not far away. See, one of the makings of a spiritual leader is the proximity they have to Christ, and Obviously, Christ is not here right now, right? But his body is. His body is. If you want to see if somebody has the makings of the spiritual leader, one thing to look for is when the body of Christ is assembled, when the body of Christ is assembled, are they in the proximity? When Sunday school is open, the body of Christ is there, I will be there. When there's Bible study sign-up, the body of Christ is there, I will be there. When there's a woo, when there's, well, that's women equipping women, by the way, or the counterpart Ironmen, if the body of Christ is assembled, I will be there. Right? The makings of a spiritual leader is somebody who loves being around the body of Christ. When the body of Christ is assembled, there they will be. Secondly, Peter placed himself under Jesus' authority, and, and this is great. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. So here's the scene. Right, Jesus asked Simon, put out a little bit to shore so he can make this natural amphitheater. Uh, he is preaching from the seated position, which is what the rabbis would do at the time. And then he's done. And he turns to Peter and says, while we're out here, Peter, let's go over there. Now, Peter, um, Peter was a pro. He wasn't a rookie fisherman. He wasn't an amateur fisherman. He wasn't a hobby fisherman. He was a professional fisherman. He was good at what he did. So good that he had a boat, a big one. I think the dimensions are 27 feet by 7.5 feet. That's a big boat. He was so good that he had a partnership with James and John. They had their own uh, fisherman enterprise. They had servants. And he tells Jesus... Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. The fish aren't there. I remember when I was a college pastor at my old church, we decided that, you know what? Let's go fishing at a lake in California. I'll just tell you guys who live in Kansas, you're spoiled, right? In Kansas, if they don't bite in five minutes, well, it's all over. They're not biting, right? We fished the entire morning, about 20 of us, not a single bite. Our conclusion was, there's no fish in this lake. 
Well, Peter is a pro. He's throwing the net in, and this is kind of like an intricate, difficult process, right? They throw a net in, and they kind of draw it out in a semicircle, and then they gradually pull it back to the boat so that they can bunch up all the fish, and there was nothing. This is not rod and reel. This is not fly fishing. This is not with a worm and a hook. They are dragging this net all over the lake, doing it over and over and over again, and they caught nothing. We toiled all night. And here is Jesus telling Peter, why don't you fish over there? I know you fished all morning, but why don't you cast your rod at one o'clock and maybe they'll be hungry for lunch. There's a, a term I think we like to use called stay in your lane. Jesus, you're a great Bible teacher. You make excellent furniture, but a fisherman you are not. Stay in your lane. It's kind of like a, me telling a doctor how to prescribe medication to their patients. Stay in your lane. Or an actor telling a politician what their policy should be. Stay in your lane. Or a politician telling an Academy Award-winning actor how to really nail this monologue. Stay in your lane, right? There is a sense where we understand that certain people have expertise in certain areas, and as long as they're in that general area of expertise, they're experts. But when you stray, they're out of their lane. But what's interesting is that Peter doesn't confine Jesus' expertise to his Bible teaching. He says, Master, we toiled all night. Notice how he calls him master. Right? That's kind of the equivalent of, of rabbi. But at your word, I will let down your nets. Because you, Jesus, told me to do it. I will go ahead and do exactly what you're telling me to do. And, and this is a place where he places himself under Jesus' authority. He doesn't try to limit it to his body of knowledge. Now, obviously, Jesus is not giving us direct commands, but the Holy Spirit sure does through the Word of God, right? And what I have seen many times is people trying to tell the Bible to stay in your lane, that the Bible does not speak to this issue. You know, the Bible's, you know, human sexuality is just so complex that we can't really allow this ancient book to speak to us today. Leave that to the psychologists and the university professors. Or, you know, the Bible doesn't really explain human behavior, like why men seem to be more promiscuous than women. Leave that to the evolutionary biologists, or psych evolutionary psychologists, right? They, they will understand that. Have the Bible stay in their lane. Or, or, you know what, the Bible was God's words for people back then, but it just needs to stay in their lane. Or, unless I understand God's reasoning behind a certain command, then... It doesn't really apply to me. But somebody places themselves under the authority of God's word, they obey first and ask questions later, as opposed to asking questions first and obey later. Right? There, there is a submission to authority. I remember talking to a young man, and he was kind of pushing back on me. And I'm like, you realize the way this relationship is supposed to work is, 
I give you counsel and you accept it, right? Otherwise, we're just wasting our time. And I was kind of losing a little bit of hope about this guy's future. And, and finally, I just pointed him to a passage and to say, what does that say? And immediately, oh, you're right. And there's a lot of hope there. If somebody points to a passage in Scripture, do you yield and say, yeah, I can't argue with that? Are you under the authority of the Word of God? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Are you trying to explain it away? Or are you, do you have a submissive heart to the authority of God's Word? You see that with Peter, right? When, when Jesus spoke, gave him a clear command, put your net over there, he didn't ask why. It was enough that Jesus asked him to do it, and he did it. Thirdly, Peter understood his place. Verse 6, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They, they signaled their, their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and came and filled both the boats, and they began to sink. Now remember, these, these boats are 27 feet long, 7.5 feet wide. That's a lot of fish. Right, they, they do the whole semicircle. They kind of cinch up the bottom. And as they're pulling the top into the boat, there's this shimmering mass of just water that's panicking and flashing and spraying and trying to go the other way. And the, the little cords of the net are beginning to, to break. They're, they're thinking, we're going to lose all the catch. And so they're frantically waving to the other people, get out here now. And they're shoveling all this the fish into the boat. And and this is the most incredible fishing event of their life. I'll tell you about my most incredible fishing event while we're here. <laughs> I was fishing in Marlin's Pond by myself, unfortunately. And I cast my rod 12 times. I was fishing with a lure. And I caught 11 large fish in 12 casts. I was just laughing. I was like, this is incredible. I remember pulling one in, and, a cat, and I, I was about to just lift it out of the water when a catfish emerged from the mud and just struck it. Oh, it's like three holes in one. I, and I, I fished enough to know that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Here, Peter fishes enough to know that this is not normal. This is one of the most incredible events that he has ever seen. This just doesn't happen. And when he sees something amazing, he becomes undone. There's a parallel to this. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see another person who sees something that undoes him. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and his train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
he is undone. And what's interesting is that Peter is acting like Isaiah just acted when he saw the Lord fill the temple. He saw something amazing in his response, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, and notice how Simon Peter sees it. As everyone is collecting all the fish, Simon Peter stops and realizes what just happened. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. And note Simon becomes Simon Peter in a moment. He blends his name. This is when his true identity comes forth. He collapses in front of Jesus. And the question is, well, why? Now, when you look at this miracle, there's a couple ways that this could have gone down. Number one, Jesus could have stood at the, at the helm of the boat and commanded all the fish to get into the net. Right? They all responded to his command. And that could be the case. But normally when, when Jesus shows his authority over the natural elements of this world, there's clear contextual considerations, right? Like the disciples will say, even the wind and the waves obey him. What is more likely the case is that Jesus became the divine fish finder. He knew exactly where the fish were located. He knew that if you drop the nets right there, you're going to get a haul. This actually, I think, makes better sense. I think it makes sense of Peter's reaction. Peter understands in that moment that if Jesus knows the location of the fish, he knows the state of my heart. He knows the secrets of my heart. He knows all the things that I have ever done. I mean, how would you respond if you stood in front of somebody with a superhuman ability to completely read your mind? Right? I, I would want that guy to please leave the room. Because if he's reading my mind, he's not going to like what he finds. Now, if somebody begs to differ, oh, he'll love what's in my mind. Well, good for you. Liar, right? <laughs> and so he understands his omniscience in that moment. And, and he's, see what he calls him? He actually gives him a promotion here. He goes from master, which kind of means rabbi, to Lord. Now, it's true that Lord can just mean master. But when it's used the previous 33 times in Luke, it always refers to the Lord God. This is actually a confession of divinity. Now, did Peter maintain that the whole time? No. He is human after all. But in this moment, at this point in time, he understands that he is the Lord. He is under deep conviction. He understood his place. He understood his place. And you know what? Isaiah had to understand his place. Because he would be commissioned, Isaiah the prophet, to preach to a people who are dull, who don't want to hear the message that he wants to hear. And that's a difficult assignment. I mean, I, I love you guys because every time I preach, it's like you guys come back for more, right? You guys are an eager audience. You love hearing the word of God. And that's why you're such a joy to preach to. But can you imagine the burden of preaching to people who don't want to hear it? Oh, that was Isaiah's call. Eventually, Peter would preach to a people who didn't want to hear it as well. People 
He's in Jerusalem that just crucified their Messiah. Holy Spirit comes upon him. He preaches and he tells people, by the way, you crucified your Messiah. This encounter, this fear of the Lord motivated him to do profoundly difficult ministry. He would not kowtow to the leaders. He won't. Uh, He wouldn't submit to powerful personalities. He knew that he had to submit to God, and that fueled his ministry. This fear of the Lord explains the ministry of Martin Luther. You guys know about Martin Luther? Year was 1521, and Martin Luther was at the center of an international controversy. The reason he challenged the sale of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church. For those of you who don't know what an indulgence is, it was a pretty sweet deal for the Catholic Church where if you give this money to the church in the name of your loved one, you could shorten or perhaps eradicate their time in purgatory. So to get your your loved one out of purgatory, when a penny rings, a soul springs from purgatory. That was the motto. And they were able to raise all kinds of money to basically refurbish and expand St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. But there was a problem. There is this renegade monk up in the German area, in the German region, German-speaking region, that was challenging the theology of it, and people stopped giving. And so Pope Leo X leaned in on the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, to investigate this monk. So they brought him in for the Diet of Worms, and he would be interrogated in front of the emperor, the most powerful political figure in Europe at that time. And so the Catholic Church was kind enough to provide some inquisitors. And what they did was they brought him before the king in front of this great hall, and they laid out all his books, and they asked him, did you write these books? And Martin Luther whispered, yes. Will you recount these, will will you recant these books? And Martin Luther said, give me a day to think about it. He wasn't a lion right away. He went back to his cell. He prayed, remembered the God who he served, and the next day he was brought up once again before the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was asked very directly, will you recant? And this is what he said. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant. Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. That is a man who feared the Lord. And when you fear the Lord, you fear his approval more than the approval of man. You fear the consequences of disobeying him more than the consequences of disobeying even a king. Peter understood his place. And then Peter replaced his priorities. Look at verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. 
And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So Peter's not alone. James and John are like, wow, this is amazing. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So here you have Peter who is broken before Jesus. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Remember when Isaiah was trembling before the Lord? Well, the Lord approached him and said, do not be afraid. I am sending you to this people to preach my word. Peter, I know you have done terrible things. I know you have sinned greatly. But don't be afraid. And the reason why Peter doesn't need to be afraid is because three years from now, Jesus will die on the cross. He will pay for all of Peter's sins and all those terrible things that he did. He will atone for his sins. He'll be raised from the dead. He'll redeem him so that Peter will be right with God. And then he'll go up to heaven and send down the Holy Spirit so that Peter can boldly proclaim the gospel given to him. Do not be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will be catching men. You'll go from being a fisherman to a fisher of men. Instead of bringing fish from the lake into the boat, you'll be pulling souls from the lake of fire into the ark of safety. You will be a fisher of men. And when he had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Peter had one last great catch. And now he's off into retirement. And he's going to leave Galilee with Jesus. He will travel wherever Jesus travels. He will not be anchored to boats. He won't be anchored to his business. He won't be anchored to fishing or having to minister by a body of water. Wherever Jesus goes, he will go. He will follow him, literally. He replaced his priorities. Fishing wasn't that important to him anymore. Now, for some of you, you might think, so do I need to quit my job? Is that, is, is that what it means to follow Jesus, that I need to quit my job? I was in a college ministry where they would answer that question, yes. If you don't go into full-time ministry, you're somehow not serving the Lord. And that's the exact wrong thing to say, by the way. Now, if you are, I don't know, working as a gambling debt collector, yeah, you probably should quit your job. But short of that, there's not a real competition between secular work and sacred work. It's all about how you approach it. Because did you know that Paul was bivocational? He actually paid his own way at times. He tells us in Colossians 3, 23-24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as a reward of your servant, the Lord Christ. There's a way to integrate what you do with worship, where every day you go to the office, you are working for the Lord, not for men. 
you see this as a stewardship. But I tell you, when you really give all and you replace your priorities, I think it changes the way you look at yourself. Like when somebody says, what do you do for a living or what do you do? We often tend to find our identity in our jobs, right? That's why a lot of people who are unemployed have identity crises. But instead of saying, I'm a teacher and I'm a policeman, you say, well, I'm actually a disciple of Jesus Christ. I teach students to pay the bills, right? It's how you see yourself. Who are you really? What is your calling? And your calling is to be all in. In this case, you see that Peter is sold out to Jesus Christ. There is nothing he won't do for his Savior, for his Lord. He had to leave it behind because that's what Jesus wanted from him. And so when you look at a spiritual leader, you want someone who is 100% absolutely, totally, convictionally committed to Jesus Christ and his cause, right? Where, where the kingdom priorities define their life. It defines how they raise their family. It defines their marriage. It defines their approach to singleness. It, it defines their approach to school. It defines their vocation. It defines their, uh, their way of interacting with the church. Church is not confined the kingdom is not confined to what they do on Sundays. It dominates their entire life. And seriously, if you are a sold-out Christian, what kind of leadership do you want? You want to be led by people who are sold out, right? Because you understand that if you are under lukewarm leadership, lukewarm leaders beget lukewarm Christians, Sold-out leaders, they still might beget lukewarm Christians, and that's not really their fault, but, but they can beget sold-out Christians. And so what's true of Peter, and the reason why God, through Jesus, chose him was because he was sold out. And that's not just the calling for leadership. That's the calling for leadership because God wants that to be the calling for everybody else. And that is to have somebody with deep conviction. And I love that word, conviction. It means they are convinced. I believe that the gospel is good news. Contrary to what this world tells us, the best news in the world is that Jesus is Lord. He conquered sin and death. He has paid for your sin. And if you turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can have eternal life. That is the best news. It is to be convinced that hell is a real place. That people are actually going to hell unless they repent. And you live your life that, like that doctrine really matters. You believe that when you give to the Lord, you are actually laying up treasures in heaven. And so you do that because you are convinced that that really matters. You really believe that the word of God is God's word, and when he tells you to do something in God's word, that obedience is not optional. You believe like it really matters. You believe that at the end of your life, you will stand before the Lord, not in judgment in the sense that you might go to heaven or hell, although that might be true of you who don't know the Lord, but even those of you who are in the body of Christ, you understand that you'll give an account for the ministry you are entrusted with, and you understand that what you're doing right now matters. 
You see, all of us, I think we know that if you were to stand before the Lord right now, would you do anything differently? Now, some of you, you'd probably say, oh, yeah, I do this and this differently. But when you look at the body of your life, your body of work, and you've been a faithful Christian, you've been inconsistent, but you've had the right priorities. This is not for you. Excel still more. God bless you. Um, I admire what you're doing. I've been encouraged by your progress, and there's many of you in this church. But there's another group of people where you are held back. You don't want to go all in. You want to diversify your commitments because you're not sure if this whole thing will work out and you think it would be a great loss to you if you go all in on Christ and his kingdom priorities. And so here's the question. I mean, what, what's keeping you from being all in? Honestly. Popularity. You want friends or certain kind of friends. Maybe career advancement. You're seeking a relationship, and you know that if, if you go all in, this relationship's over. You want to keep peace with your family, keep peace with your friends, not be a troublemaker. You enjoy the pleasures of this life. You want to keep your boss happy. You want to please your friends. Or perhaps there's a, a secret sin in your life that you know that if you were to really deal with it, it would blow up your life. Have to confess it to your spouse, that would be a mess. It's better to just ignore it and just continue in lukewarmness. My friend, what is more important than being all in for the kingdom? If you really believe it, act like it. Live out your conviction like it's real. And that's what Peter did. Took him a while to get there. Yes, he did fail, but he was restored. But he always came back to Jesus. And the Lord used him to do incredible things. And he still ministers to us today. And when you understand that Peter was all in, you can hear the following words that he said, knowing that he had the integrity to say them. In 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Those are the words of a man who is all in, right? And that's his will for you. And that's God's will for you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are thankful for Peter's life and ministry. We know that he wasn't perfect. He had a faltering relationship with you, but you saw something in him, how he was drawn to your proximity, 
how he submitted to your authority, how he understood his place before your son, and how he replaced all his priorities with yours. That's your will for his life. That's also your will for ours. And for anyone here who is on the fence, who, who knows better, I pray that you will move them to take that step of faith, to trust that you who sent your son to die on the cross for us will give us all things and to move us to follow you with conviction and determination, even though the world may reject us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.